Hi, Annie. How are you? I'm very well. How are you, Harry? I'm great. God, this is a long time coming, isn't it? <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Yes, I didn't mean oh, to no, 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 I didn't <laughs> Hello, I'm Robinson, Harry Robinson, and recording from Oklahoma, 5,000 miles away from my usual setting. This is the All Out Attack podcast. Yeah, as long as you're comfortable, I'm... <laughs> Just start cr- like a like a bar stool. Just start cranking it up. <laughs> yeah, right. This has been recorded. If you include this in the interview, I will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> my guest today is Annie Mashon former MI5 intelligence officer who, in 1996, alongside her partner David Shaler, blew the whistle on numerous alleged crimes that MI5 had committed whilst they were there. From illegal phone taps, to allowing preventable bombs to kill innocent people, and even an assassination attempt on Colonel Gaddafi. Since then, Annie has become one of the forefrontal voices on privacy and whistleblowing in the world, as well as working on the front line on the war on drugs for the organisation yeah, I mean, are you ready to get started? I, I normally look a bit better, but I was only allowed to take one suitcase, so I had to pack light. So I couldn't bring, I normally have like a webcam and a light, and you know, I'm so full of myself because I look great. And uh, <laughs> it's. Don't worry, um, don't worry. <laughs> with the expertise and eloquence you would expect a former intelligence officer to have, but with the friendliness that may not fit MI5 stereotype, I sat down with a woman impassioned to educate the world. I hope you enjoy. So, I mean, it would be silly for me to introduce yourself. So for you, who is Annie Mashon? Who is Annie Mashon is a very good question. Um, I would define myself largely by what I've done and what I continue to do. So, of course, my early professional life has then coloured the rest of my life in terms of what I do now. Um, But the early professional life was as an intelligence officer with MI5, the UK Domestic Security Service, which I worked for for six years before leaving with my former partner and colleague, David Shaler, to go public about the crimes of the spies and blow the whistle. Um, And we went on the run and lived in hiding and lived in exile in Europe for three years and um, went through some big court cases, too. But from that, and this is what has brought me to where I am now, where I'm talking about a much wider range of issues, that taught me a number of useful lessons. First of all, what it's like to live without privacy. Secondly, um, how the media can be controlled and manipulated, which I think goes forward into this era of deep fakes and and conspiracy theories and everything, and has led me to become involved um, in a number of different areas of campaigning, which I found immensely interesting and rewarding. Uh, most notably, the Law Enforcement Action Pro- Partnership, um, used to be called Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, which is trying to end the war on drugs. Uh, I've become very involved in online privacy issues and security issues, um, plunging headfirst into the sort of hacktivist scene in Europe a decade ago. Um, I've worked with a number of very prominent whistleblowers. I'm part of an organisation called the Sam Adams Award, where we give an award every year to those who display integrity in intelligence. And also now, currently, I'm a director of the World Ethical Data Foundation and also an organiser of the World Ethical Data Forum, um, which, again, is pulling together all these different ideas and pulling together all these disparate communities of people to try and talk about why we have to be concerned about how our data is used and abused online and how we can protect ourselves and what the threats we need to be aware of are. And um, this is a very creative cauldron 
because we might be getting someone from the NSA or might be someone from GCHQ or we have a whistleblower or whatever it is talking about this stuff. And, um, you know, really high end tech experts, uh, very eminent investigative journalists, academics, all sorts of different people. So I suppose out of what started out as what I thought would be, a, you know, a nice safe job for life, which was MI5, all this stuff, the, the sort of front line and a cutting edge and, and definitely, you know, flying by the seat of your pants type stuff to use all these cliches of living a freelance life has been one quite frightening quite scary but also amazingly fun and I've met so many good people and um, got my head wrapped around all sorts of really disparate ideas so it's yeah that's yeah. that's what Annie Mashon is who she is that will always remain private <laughs> <laughs> well if we if we wind it back then so obviously you um you you became an intelligence officer for MI5 Bit of a two-part question, but firstly, how did you get to join MI5? But also, was going into a job that was very secret, what were your thoughts about the, the secrecy and, and the privacy mm. about the job that you were going into? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've said this many times, so apologies if it sounds a bit um, stale for the first part, but for the second part, it won't be. Um, but yes, I sort of fell into MI5 by accident because I wanted to be a diplomat and I applied to the Foreign Office. Mm -hmm. And then I was sent a letter from the Ministry of Defence, apparently, saying there are other jobs you might might find more interesting. And if you are interested, just call this phone number. I say, OK. And I went, oh, fuck, it's MI5, my usual ladylike way. Um, and I was going to ignore it, uh, but my father encouraged me to call and see if it was the spooks. Because one, he was a, a journalist, oops, and um, two, he was also a huge spy um, aficionado. I mean, he loved Lucare and then Dayton and all those novels and everything. So I did. And then 10 months later, after a grueling recruitment process, I found myself working uh, as an intelligence officer. In terms of dealing with the secrecy, though, that is a weird one, because right up front, as soon as you make that very first contact, you are told not to tell anyone um, who you're talking to. Well, obviously, I told my dad. <laughs> he already knew. <laughs> but for 10 months of being recruited, so you go through um, a first interview, which lasts for three hours. It's very intensive. If you get through that, you then have a two-day, uh, grueling two days of being psychometrically tested, lots of exams, lots of tests, lots of interviews, lots of role play. And most people don't get through that. And then if you do get through that, you have final assessment where you're sort of up between three of the great and the good coming out of the spies and the government and um, things. And if you get through the final stage, then you are vetted when that takes months too, because you're being vetted to the highest level in the UK. So all through this process, you are disappearing off for a day or two or whatever to London to go through this process. And your friends are saying, well, where are you going? What's this job you're trying to apply? You can't tell them. Ah, I think at that point I was saying it was Ministry of Defence or something. But then um, then as you get further into it, they do say, well, you know, if you if you have a partner, had a partner, um, you can tell them if you trust them um, and you can tell your best friend. But even so, you're doing all this and you can say, actually, it's MI5, but then you can't say anything else. One, actually, at that, that stage, you don't know anything else. Mm -hmm. But two, um, it sort of puts a shutter down between even you and your best friend or you and your partner. Because as you do become more involved and when you do start working there, you still can't talk about your day-to-day -day life. Oh, you know, I've just had this wonderful contract. I've, I've got this wonderful contract in my job. How is your day, Annie? And it's like, um, 
well, I um, listened to someone's phone call uh, calls and then we decided they might be about to plant a bomb. So then I had to liaise with all these different organisations to make sure that they weren't going to do that. You can't say anything. Yeah. So it sort of puts a barrier. It's, it's like a sort of invisible, invisible glass barrier between you and people out on the outside of their scene. Mm. Um, which is partly why so many relationships start on the inside, because at least you can talk about stuff together. <laughs> so... So, so did you tell your your friend then and your your partner at the time? I did say yes. It's not MOD. It's actually MI5. What were their? Um, what you, was their? I reaction? can't say anything. Um, my best friend. I've known her. I still love her a bit. I've known her since we were seven, and she was just puzzled. Isn't that why on earth would you want to do that? <laughs> uh, my partner at the time, because uh, we've both been at Cambridge, he was like, "Oh, that sounds good. Go for it." I was like, "Okay," because I wasn't terribly keen on the concept at that point because mm-hmm. they they'd had a bad reputation in the 1980s i mean i was being recruited in 1990 <clears throat> and they'd been involved in allegedly been involved in things like the miners strike and there'd been whistleblowers coming out saying you know they were breaking the law doing this or doing that or spying on the wrong people or activists or whatever and also having watched various john le carre series with my father the spy aficionado um i got the impression that that world was full of very grey, door, depressed men. I thought, why would anyone want to work in that world anyway? But the recruitment process is a long process. It took 10 months. And at each stage, you are um, encouraged and you're told we're not like that. We're not the way we've been misrepresented in the press. We now have to follow the law, which they did. Um, A couple of laws have come into place in the 1980s, most notably the Official Secrets Act, 89. Um, and we're actually looking for a new generation of intelligence officer, not to do the old stuff. It's not just counter espionage. It's not counter subversion, looking at fellow citizens because they might be reds under the bed or something. We'll go back to that later. And um, we actually need people to work on counterterrorism targets, particularly the provisional IRA at that time, which was at the height of its effectiveness and its powers. So gradually going through this process and actually very much liking and trusting the woman who recruited me, who was an intelligence officer, um, who just did not, did, she did not look like a spy. I mean, it's, you, people have various stereotypes. She looked like a hippie. I mean, she had, you know, long hair and sort of tiered floaty skirts and all the rest of it. And we got on really well. So I, I obviously trusted her as well. So I, I went along with it. And the more I learned and the more I heard and the more I was told, and the more the fact that I went through these very grueling processes and they seem to think, you know, I got through every stage and I thought this job might be actually right for me and it could be good. It could actually be something that would make a difference and potentially save lives. And bear in mind, I was only um, you know, 21 when I was being recruited. I was 22 when I started working there. So, you know, young, idealistic. My age. <laughs> I know. Although I, I remember when you first, you first emailed me and you said, um, actually, I wasn't even born when you blew the whistle. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. so sweet. <laughs> I, I just thought that when I contacted you, because uh, you know, you, you, obviously you're a speaker as well now. I mean, we'll we'll get onto that. But you, you're, I I just kind of thought the best way to reach out was just to be completely frank, because you will have heard all the bollocks before about you know oh, I'm I'm such a big fan of of your work, and you know I'm a big admirer of your work. But in, in all honesty, I'm an admirer of your work after looking into your work before contacting you. <laughs> It's almost like a sort of, um, oh, this is a moment from history. Let's have a talk about this. And that, I'm fine with that. Seriously, you get to my age. I really don't care. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you you don't look however old you are. 
Get on. <clears throat> that's all <older. laughs> That's why I butter up my guests. I said that to it Peter, works. but actually he didn't believe me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did you feel, so you're talking about the rigorous kind of training and, and that kind of stuff. Do you feel that as you were kind of taking steps into quite a secret lifestyle and, and occupation that you were changing as a person at all? Or did you try and stay true to who you were before the MI5? I've always tried to stay true to who I was. I mean, obviously, one grows up and changes anyway. I and mean, you do rapidly in your 20s because, you know, you, you graduate, you come out of university, you get your first jobs, um, more relationships potentially or whatever. And so you do change anyway. I mean, it's just the, the natural habit. And I, I still do. I still evolve, um, which is great. But I think my principles have always been the same. I came out of... Um, an interesting sort of family background because I was born and grew up in Guernsey, hence my funny French surname. And um, both my father and my grandfather were journalists and editors actually of the local paper. Mm-hmm. And in Guernsey, they broke a lot of stories because you know all the tax evaders and things like that. It was a good place to be the editor of a local paper. Um, so I always grew up with the sense of justice, the sense of trying to um, report the truth the sense that if you saw injustice, you had to do something about it. And so that has always been very, very deeply ingrained in my psyche, I think, going through. That's why I was reluctant when my five first approached me, because I thought, okay, they've got a bad reputation. And then I was reassured when I was being recruited. And then, of course, once I was there, um, it was, okay, they've got a bad reputation. What are we going to do about it? <laughs> so that, that motivation was there that motivation is what took me out of mi5 and that motivation is what has carried me through doing everything i've done since as well i think when did you start to kind of realize that mi5 had a bad reputation uh probably in the first two weeks oh really why what was the oh no no that was training that was training it was when i was posted to my after the first two weeks Mm -hmm. induction i was posted we were given our postings my first posting was to a section called f2b which was precisely the type of work that my lovely hippie recruiter had said they no longer did, which was investigating fellow UK citizens for their political activism, i.e. subversion. Mm-hmm. And I was there for two years. Um, and it was a very small section by that point. I mean, it had been massive, even up until the late 80s, you know, with tens of officers and hundreds of clerks and secretaries working to investigate these, these groups, such as Militant Tendency from the 80s, um, Socialist Workers' Party, uh, which is still current, still going. Um, class war and various anarchist groups and I really couldn't see the point there was no legitimate reason to investigate these sort of groups under the terms of the Official Secrets Act 1989 which had just become law and I and um, my colleagues put up very vocal objections to invading people's privacy based on the fact they might potentially be a supporter of some micro Trotskyist group or something like that and we did actually get it begin to shut down. And by 1995, it was officially shut down and the work was passed to the Metropolitan Police Special Branch at the time, who, of course, ran with it. Um, because even up to 10 years ago, there was a scandal that broke. Um, what was he called? I can't remember. There was an undercover cop who was exposed for infiltrating left wing activist groups. And many other undercover cops have now come out or been outed because they were sleeping around with all the female activists and some of them had children with them and things like that. It was pretty gross. Yeah. And, you know, these women have sued, of course, because they were 
led into these relationships with people they believed to be fellow activists on false pretenses. And then, you know, they would have a long term relationship. They'd have a kid together. And then the I was going to say the police officer would be pulled out. That's probably the wrong phrase for this particular conversation. <laughs> but he, he would if he was getting too close, he would be redeployed. That's the word. Um, and he would just disappear, vanish from these women's lives and from the group's lives. And they'd have no answers. They wouldn't be able to track them down, anything. So it was actually incredibly traumatic. So that that's where that sort of work went. But yes, the first instance was, you told me we weren't doing political subversion, and now I'm going to the political subversion group. Thank you. So that was the very first line. Did you feel that when, when you discovered that, I mean, within very soon of, of properly being initiated into MI5, you're being lied to about major branches, did you... Is there a part of you that then starts to almost be suspicious about everything that you're told by your own employer? Mm-hmm. You have to be. I mean, if your employer is MI5, of course you're suspicious. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. <laughs> how does that affect the way you work then? If, if you're constantly second guessing what you're being told? It, it sort of does and it doesn't in the sense that... Um, if you see something going wrong, or for example, uh, the second posting I had, and also Shayla had, was to T-Branch, which was the Irish terrorism branch at the height of the IRA mainland bombing campaign, which was massive in the early 1990s, uh, mid to, uh, to mid 1990s, before the peace process kicked off. And you, you know, a lot of good people go into this organization. They really do want a difference. And we were working our socks off, you know, really trying to stop active cells from putting bombs down and sometimes stuff went wrong i mean it does you know they're not perfect they can't be perfect but the point is if a mistake happens then you learn the lesson and you rectify that mistake and you make sure it can't happen again so you can do your job better what you don't do but what we saw was oh well we can lie to government to cover up our mistakes and we'll just carry on the way we're doing it because that's what we know and that was a major major problem Mm. so Many of us at that time, not just um, David and myself, at that time were raising these concerns. There was a sort of bit of a generational clash, I think is the best way of putting it, between the old cold warriors who, you know, were used to counter-espionage and counter-subversion and the new people coming in doing the counter-terrorism, which is a very different beast to deal with. And so there were quite a lot of clashes and there was a lot of, should we say, heated debate about how best to tackle these new threats and what we can learn when things go wrong so that we can rectify our mistakes. And just the fact that, oh, well, if, if you're going to carry on like this, you know, you're going to be in trouble, you might. So you have to knuckle down and not rock the boat and just follow orders. I remember those phrases came up quite a lot for most of us. So that is a problem as well, because then there is that sort of widening gulf between um, the senior management and the, the more junior officers. Because you might want to speak your mind. They might say we have an open door policy and we need to know what's going on. But actually, they don't really want to hear it. They just want to you know, let things go their usual way. Yeah. So that was a problem. There wasn't a sense, though, of um, of your, your colleagues, your sort of peer groups sneaking on you or spying on you or anything like that. I mean, it was quite collegiate and very social, actually, mm-hmm. because they're the only people you can really socialise with and talk freely to. So was was your um, when when you joined the, the the branch combating the um, the IRA was that when your fir- when you first met with David Shaler then? No, I met him in my very first posting. Um, he oh, wow. 
was recruited um, a few months after me and he joined the subversion section. It's ironic, really, when you think about it, what he did afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we met there and we were friends and colleagues. And um, after about a year, uh, we, we became partners and we just sort of fell head over heels and were together. Mm. What was your first impression of him? Big guy, very tall, big personality, um, very opinionated. He was the yes. sort of guy who would always ask the really difficult questions of the senior management and things like that, which I liked because I, I, I'm slightly more polite about it, but he was fearless. <laughs> <laughs> I, and he's just, he, he was a lovely guy. I mean, he's, you know, fiercely bright and um, incredibly funny. Um, but also, it, what do they say about people? A sort of Marmite person. So many, many people loved him, but there were people who hated him too. So it was, it, there was nothing lukewarm about David Shaler. He's yeah. just, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, so so you're, you're in, uh, you're with David, you're in the, the branch combating the uh, real IRA. Was there a, a point after your, uh, you know, because obviously you used two uh, in a relationship together and, and did some prominent things later in your life together, put it that way. Um, what was the point that you started where those concerns that you were bringing up started to kind of almost put um, sirens whirling in your head and thinking that you have to start taking action? Mm. I, think, I have to say, actually, um, when I was in F2, the very first section looking mm. at the subversion, I got to the point where I'd argue myself blue in the face repeatedly about we should not be investigating, we shouldn't be doing this, we shouldn't be bugging these friends, blah, 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 blah. Wrote loads of reports about it. And nothing would ever change because of bigger politics going on in the, the high levels of the office. Um, and I was serious at that point was going to resign after about 18 months. Um, but then, of course, Dave and I got together and you know, <laughs> so, uh, we ended up staying longer. So that was the first bit. Um, T-Branch, which was the Irish stuff, there were a couple of um, cases that went wrong, bombs that should have been prevented weren't prevented and went off and one person was killed um that was sort of covered up that's when we saw the senior management saying don't say anything just brush it under the carpet we'll lie to government sort of thing um but then we had a third posting to g branch at the time as it was called which was the international terrorism section and that's where um david saw the three key three key cases i think three yeah three um which made us you know he, he decided we have to quit we have to go and you know i was equally pissed off many of our peer group who had been recruited at the same time as us and who are our friends were already flooding out of the service i mean they were they were hemorrhaging officers which is not good because you lose that um, experience and you lose that tribal knowledge um to take forward in the organization so yeah it was the g branch stuff there was one there was an illegal telephone tap on a prominent Guardian journalist. There were two Palestinian students who were prosecuted and convicted for bombing the Israeli embassy in 1994. And MI5 withheld vital information that could have proven their innocence at the court case. They went to prison for 15 years each, appalling. And the third one was the Gaddafi plot, which became the most notorious uh, disclosure that Shayla made, where MI6 funded uh, the nascent al-Qaeda in Libya. So al-Qaeda had just come onto the radar as a threat in 1995. Um, and they funded al-Qaeda to try and assassinate Colonel Gaddafi of Libya in an illegal assassination plot, which went wrong and killed innocent people. 
So, you know, if you're going to sort of think about what's the most evil plot we can come up with and you know, keep quiet about, that's probably up there on the top yeah. sort of end of well, the scale. I mean, the people that they paid to to do the bomb had put it under the wrong car. That's how it happened, wasn't it? There was, yeah, there was an explosion. Um, the details are, the specific details are hazy, whether it was a, a road bomb or something planted under the car. But yeah, mm. it was a bomb under the wrong car. So it killed those people. And there was a security shootout as well to protect Gaddafi afterwards, which killed more people in the crowd because, you know, everyone's sort of waving the flags and everything. Um, and that was funded by MI6, our external intelligence agency. But crucially, MI6 can do stuff like that under the law that governs them, which is the Intelligence Services Act 1994, if they get the prior written permission of the foreign secretary, their political master, to give it democratic accountability in the UK. They didn't get it in this case, which is what made it illegal. Yes. As well as innocent people dying. What is more troubling, actually, think, to me, because, I mean, in, you know, 96, when we left, we resigned. 97, when the story finally broke about all this, was this, this top secret thing and how David Shaler's got to go to prison because he's exposed this. And, you know, oh, no, it didn't happen anyway, but he's got to go to prison because of it. You know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. You fast forward to 2011 when Gaddafi was actually murdered. He was deposed and murdered. Mm -hmm. And it was exactly the same group taking him out, funded by MI6. And we know this because of papers that were found in the abandoned intelligence HQ of um, the head of Libyan intelligence, a guy called Musa Kusa, who fled the country. So, but at the time, you know, in, by 2011, it was, well, this is okay. This is what our spies are supposed to do, right? rather than it's all top secret, we don't talk about this. Oh yeah, they've, they've, they've assassinated someone. So that moral slide is something that has always very much worried me. And that's 10 years ago, geez, 2011. So how much better or worse they've got, I don't know, in the last decade. Do you feel that, <laughs> I mean, it's quite um, ironic or poetic, depending on how you see it, but I mean, today is the day that the new James Bond film has come out. Do you feel that portrayals of, of the Secret Service in the media and the, the gritty, entertaining, you know, stuff of, of James Bond going and, and taking and, you know, mm. taking people out and that kind of stuff. Do you feel that that has almost given MI5 and MI6 this almost air of invincibility or that they can get away with stuff and, and people won't be outraged because it's like, oh, that's what spies do? bit of both, I think. I mean, people will say that's what spies do. And actually, that's a very naive position. Spies are supposed to get up to naughty stuff, but they are supposed to do, if they're working within a d democracy, such as the UK is, or the US is, notionally, um, as opposed to a sort of totalitarian regime, they're supposed to be what's called proportionality, a sort of democratic balance and accountability to protect the rights of innocent citizens and just go after the, the people who really do want to cause harm. At the moment, of course, what we've had over the last 20 years um, is a sort of scramble to grab all information. So we're all, all our data is harvested, all our information is harvested. We are all potentially spied on. So that lack of proportionality is a problem. In terms of um, things like James Bond, the spies always say, we don't want James Bond. <laughs> and I know this as well, because my last year when I was there, I was actually trained up to be a recruiter um, and went through the whole process. This is what we're looking for. This is what we're not looking for. So anyone who's got any pretension to be James Bond is immediately ejected. Don't want you. Really? Ejector seed. Yeah, yeah. Um, having said that, MI6 actually do really enjoy, people that do enjoy that sort of mythology. And it has been probably the most effective recruiting tool or the most effective PR tool 
of any spy agency anywhere on the planet, um, even better than the stuff that's been done about the CIA in America, or even better than the stuff that's been done. There was a series called Spooks mm-hmm. um, in the noughties about MI5, made it very glamorous, completely unrealistic. Um, but yeah, the James Bond franchise have, has been useful in a way in terms of saying, well, they're spies, that's what they do. And most people will go along with that. They won't think about the checks and balances that are necessary for a fully functioning democracy. Um, and it does look glamorous, but yeah, it's much more, if you're lucky enough, you get invited to sort of, you know, Whitehall parties and you get a glass of cheap white wine in a you don't get martini glass or something. No, 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 you don't get that. <laughs> <laughs> you certainly don't get the big expense accounts. <laughs> All the Aston Martin. <laughs> um, if if I wind it back a bit, I wanted to ask. So so with, um, with you being a part of branches that I mean, obviously you not not in particular you, but the branch itself and the highest up in the branch are responsible for the deaths of of innocent people, even though it, it's out of your control. Uh, being not one of the the head um, honchos of the branch, is there a sense of of guilt that comes with that 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 weighs on your mind? Always, always, always. I mean, this is another one of the disconnects. Uh, you asked me right at the start about what it's like when it comes to what you can talk about with your, your close friends or your family and things. It's the same sort of thing. You can be involved in an operation and some of the time the work is very much behind the desk and you're analysing and, and planning and running operations. But when they go live, you are on the ground. You are debriefing the agency. You are thinking very fast and, and trying to stop something happening. Um, so then you know the entire backstory, of course, but then if it's a really big case and something happens and it's in the news, it's like 30 seconds on the BBC News or something. Mm-hmm. And you, you sort of sit there and think, hang on. I was... okay." So even if it's a good operation and you get the results you want, that is quite a, a weird sort of um, barrier to reality in a way. However, if something goes wrong and, some, for example, a bomb does explode, I never had that, <laughs> thank God. But... Um, the people who were supposedly running that operation. Um, and it was our my level sort of thing. We were sort of middle-ranking intelligence officers at that time. So you'd be the ones sort of coordinating the operation and trying to make sure it all goes right. And you're working with the police or you're working with various other government agencies. If it goes wrong and people do die, there is a huge sense of personal guilt, I think, from what I've seen. But there's also a sense of collective guilt you know, everyone within that branch will know the person who is supposed to, and they go, oh God, that could have been me, or I can contributed this thing, this bit of information, or I could have done that, or whatever. So there is a huge care for the work that they do, and a huge care for try, literally trying to save lives. Um, you know, it's, it's it, when it can go wrong, it can go badly wrong because it's entirely secret, and that's the cover-up bit that you mentioned. But when you, when it goes right, or wrong i mean you know they're just normal human beings trying to do a bit of a weird job most yeah. of them some of them are real weirdos but we won't go down that path <laughs> well i mean it's, it's a job that you were told by that you weren't even told it was mi5 really until you is that is, when you when you got the were told to ring this number for a more interesting mm-hmm. job were you told it was mi5 mm-hmm. or was it just no, like no, a, no. no yeah it's the ministry of defense um though no the, but it was the first interview it was the three-hour interview with my hippie um and halfway through that, she said, well, why do you think you're here? And I sort of went, uh, are you MI5? And I thought, God, if I got this wrong, I'm going to sound like a real plonker. And, 
She said, yes, we are. Can you sign this? And what she meant by sign this was a notification of the Official Secrets Act. Like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, if, if going back on, on track to the kind of storyline of how mm. you and, and David decided to blow the whistle, um, out of the two, was it David who made that decision to, to blow the whistle? Mm-hmm. How, why did you go along with him? Oh, because I knew exactly what he was talking about. I mean, you know, we worked together, we lived together, uh, we socialised with uh, a lot of our friends within the service who were all saying the same stuff. And also a lot of them were leaving at that time because they were equally disgusted. Um, but many of them had mortgages or they had small children, they couldn't do anything about it. So they just you know, bobbed along into the next life. And Dave, who'd started life as a journalist, actually, professionally, said we've got to do something i mean as i said he was he was a very big personality a very you know passionate man in terms of what's right what's wrong so he said we've got to do something about it if we don't do it who's going to do it and um it was a very very difficult decision even so to go ahead because it's not just you're leaving your job you're actually slamming the door shut behind you you'll never get another decent job because you become a whistleblower and no no big corporation or whatever is going to hire you and also we were losing our friends because we socialized largely with that. We would be worrying and upsetting our families, all that sort of stuff. So it was a very big step to take. I mean, we have whistleblowing, the concept of whistleblowing has become much more mainstream, I think, over the last two decades. I and mean, people coming out of the financial sector or health sector particularly, there's so many whistleblowers. And they all have a really rough time. Like they lose their professional standing, their reputation, their ability to earn a living. They upset their families. They might lose their family life. But the crucial difference between those groups and and intelligence is that you do all that and you have to go through all that. But actually, you will also potentially lose your liberty and go to prison. Mm -hmm. And this happens both in the UK and the USA. And I've worked with a lot of um, US whistleblowers, many of them are friends of mine, over the years too. So... The decision was not an easy one, um, but yeah, it had to be done. It had to be done. Yeah. So how did you? So I, I know that you fed. Um, uh, you, you fed. I mean, it was. I think the the, the main things you were, were blowing the whistle on were like illegal phone taps and the Gaddafi plot and 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 files on on government ministers and, and things like that. How did you and David decide to go about it? in terms of, I mean, how do you even know to, uh, to go about blowing the whistle? Where do you start in that situation? It's not a position that many people get, <laughs> get into. Yeah. Well, back in the day, um, because we knew exactly how we could be monitored, because we were the ones who were monitoring, we could take the steps to make sure that nobody picked up on anything. Um, nowadays, it would be virtually bloody impossible, unless you're some you know tech wizard like Edward Snowden, even, to try and evade the electronic dragnet. Um, but no, as I said, David started life as a journalist and he had journalist friends still. Mm-hmm. And um, he got someone to vet, I think is the best way. Um, potential journalists might be good for him to work with and he set up a meeting and it was all fake names. And, you know, I don't know the details particularly because he wanted deliberately to keep me out of that phase. So if he were caught before anything happened, I would know nothing. So he was very protective of me. Um, but that went on for a, a few months, I think. And then suddenly he came back one day and said, um, the story's going to break. 
uh, in two weekends. I was like, oh my God, okay. Um, and he suggested it might be a good idea to leave the country for a week or two until the heat dies down. Because <laughs> he knew there'd be this huge sort of media yes. scandal, and there was. Um, so he went off and got this whole thing set up and the first disclosures and all that sort of stuff with the newspaper. And I um, uh, I packed the bags and um, sorted out the travel and got us out of the country. <laughs> so did you head to France initially then? Or? No, we, we flew out to the Netherlands initially and had a week of <clears throat> travelling around all the unglamorous rural towns of the Netherlands. And then, and also, of course, still because the story exploded after the first, when it first yes. appeared, went massive. And we knew that MI5 was chasing us hot on our trail. So we were moving around a lot. And then I just said, right, we've got to move further. So we went from The Hague in the Netherlands all the way down via Paris to the far southwest of France in one day. That's as far as we could get by train. Mm. I mean, you, you can't use airplanes because you know, they can yeah, you at the airport and things. Mm -hmm. How did, did the thought cross your mind? I mean, I imagine it did uh, about the fact that you were a part of the, the kind of team that were chasing and tracking down people and now you were on the shoe was on the other foot that was oh really God. playing your mind <laughs> <laughs> it yeah it's what what's the, the the paranoia like when when someone like the mi5 uh, mi5 mm. is tracking you down uh it's appalling mm. because we could put ourselves behind a desk and say this is how i would track me down and this is how i have tracked people down and i would do it really well so the paranoia um was intense in fact there were there were certain times Dave was actually a bit more relaxed than me and <laughs> times when we were sort of we've got to go we've got to go we've got to go out of this hotel now come go and um we found out from people afterwards that they got within an hour and a half two hours of us so yeah really? it's good to be paranoid <laughs> but um yes of course we knew all the dodges as well so that allowed us we were on the run for a month it's like some weird backpacking holiday around Europe and then I went back to the UK, handed myself into the police and was arrested and all that sort of thing. And But I was never charged with any crime. I was just the girlfriend at that point. Yes. And um, they kept me on police bail for six months. So I had to keep going back to London to answer that, which was a pain. Um, and in the meantime, when I was over in London being arrested, David found a very remote French farmhouse in the middle of nowhere, which is where we hid for a year mm -hmm. um, once I got out of the police clutches. And then um, he was arrested and the British tried to extradite him in the summer of 1998. And he was put in prison by the French, a notorious hellhole called La Sante Prison in Paris. And um, four months of that. And then the French law, which we'd taken advice on before we went on the run. We were told there were two countries you could go to where you'd be protected as a whistleblower, which is France and the USA. <laughs> <laughs> you'd have to have a death wish to go to the usa now i mean look at poor assange but anyway <laughs> oh sorry i shouldn't say that you're an american <laughs> no, I, I mean it's yeah it, it the the scenery is lovely i can say that the food's too fried it is, <laughs> it is. <laughs> but um so we ended up in france and despite the fact the french had to put him in prison they had to go through the motions legally they did release him they said whatever anyone who blows the whistle that's a political action and we do not extradite for political prisoners Mm -hmm. And that was it, click hard. So then we had another two years in Paris, uh, living much more openly, rather than our little farmhouse. And then David went back voluntarily to face the music, as they say, and got arrested as he arrived in the UK. 
and went through um, three years of legal hearings and a big trial in the Old Bailey and then, of course, being convicted under the terms of the Official Secrets Act and going to prison. But he only got six months, which wasn't too bad. When... I did a very good plea mitigation thing in court after he was convicted before he was sentenced. <laughs> what, why? And I, I guess when was the turning point um, that David decided he was going to turn himself in? Like what caused that turning point? Was it just the paranoia and and hate of being on the run? <clears throat> well, it was difficult. I mean, but having said that, we, you know, it was lovely living in Paris. Anyone who ever hears this, Paris is a really good city. It's my favourite on the planet. But um, especially if you're on the run. <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> we went on the run literally. This is after he'd been released. From yeah, so you were on e exile. In exile. Yeah, that's the best way of putting it. Um, so I could travel backwards and forwards between London and Paris and do all the sort of, you know, uh, PR stuff and the legal stuff and everything like that. But David was actually stuck literally in Paris or in France. If he'd mm -hmm. gone to any other European country, they might have tried to extradite him again. So it, he did get quite claustrophobic, although people kept, you know, our friends and family could travel over very easily. And, you know, it wasn't a problem from that perspective. I think one of the things that did for him was in um, April... 2000, I almost died from meningitis C. I don't know where I got it, it picked it up in <clears throat> Paris and um, was in intensive care um, and then very, very ill for a number of months. And one of the things that can make you vulnerable to infection of those sort of disease viruses, oh no, it's bacterial, yeah, bacteria, um, can be stress. So he just thought, you know, we've been through enough, Annie's been through enough, let's just go home. So I think it was a a strategic thing in terms of where the case had got, how far he could go from abroad. There was a sense of homesickness and there was a concern for me. Mm. It's quite beautiful how much he he cared about you in the way that the the kind of the the whistleblowing and the, the uh, you know the deciding to end it was almost moulded by how much he cared about you. It wasn't the only the only reason, but um yeah, yes, cool. he did. I mean we were we were incredibly close. It was a oh. very unusual relationship. <laughs> Well, I, I, mean, I guess things like that being make spies you together, so to speak, and things, yeah, going on the run. Mm. <laughs> um, so, so after David has had, uh, had gone to had given himself up and gone to prison in the UK, um, did life? I was going to say return to normal, but <laughs> as normal as you could have maybe hoped. <laughs> no, I by that point, I mean we'd been involved in. So I'd worked from, for MI five from January ninety one, and the legal case against Dave when he was finally released was about February, January 2003. So that was 12 years mm. of living this crazy life, both on the inside, on the outside. And after that, you think, what is normal? You know? <laughs> so no, that was difficult. I mean, it was a difficult few years. I mean, it did take its toll on David as well. Mm. Um, and yeah, he's, if you look him up on Google, I mean, you know, He's a self-proclaimed messiah and um, a transvestite called Dolores and all sorts of other things now. Um, but yeah, those those few years after um, the end of the case were really difficult. We did write a book. And I, just I love your it. professionalism. I do have it. I do have the name of it written down as well. <laughs> like, you know, spies, lies and whistleblowers. That's uh, it. I think it's out of print now. But um, yeah, we did write that in that time, um, which is a pretty comprehensive series of all the allegations we made and the detail of what it's like to work there and what went wrong but um yeah 
I trying to recreate yourself, rebuild yourself after going through those sort of experiences is, is very strange. And I did feel quite rudderless for a few years. And I got involved in uh, Stop the War activism, um, became a speaker for a while. This isn't, you know, the run up particularly in around the war in Iraq in 2003 mm. and um, other stuff around the war on terror. And from that, I sort of started meeting people and started to do much more public. I mean, David and I separated in 2006 as well. <clears throat> so I was sort of trying to find my feet again. And that's when I became more involved in organizing speaking tours for people I knew. I mean, a lot of progressive American activists or progressive American politicians would come to me and say, hey, you're in London. Can you can you organize something across Europe? Yeah, OK, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, and then just it's just a knock on effect. I mean, I think the way I've always approached life is you you keep looking forward and you unless something is absolutely terrible, you, you take a punt, you have a go at something, even if you think I can't do it, this might not be my thing. So I got involved in more and more different activities, more and more different campaigns. Um, and because of that, I started doing a lot more media as well and became much more high profile. And every time there would be, I mean, still to this day, if there's an intelligence story, I get rung up by various um, media organizations in Europe to comment on it. But learning new bits or linking old knowledge to new areas of interest, I think has been very important to me. So discovering the whole hacktivist scene um, in Europe um, uh, and their work on against surveillance or their work on privacy online and things like that obviously fascinated me. I, I just dived headfirst into that environment for a number of years and still do work on it. Uh, the war on drugs was something I was approached about. I was doing a Canadian speaking tour, I think in 2009, 2010, I can't remember. And someone approached me afterwards in Victoria and said, have you ever heard about this organization? They're trying to end the war on drugs. It's called Lead. Um, so I met the founder in Amsterdam. He made me join up as a speaker. And a couple of years later, I found myself attending the UN on part of Lead. So it's just like, you never know what's going to come up or who you're going to meet. And it just sort of, it's like chucking a stone in a pond and the ripples go out. I mean, it's the old cliche, but that's pretty much how my life has evolved since. And to this day, I get interesting projects coming through. And I think, oh, not sure about that. Can I do that? Oh, just do it. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's a good it's a good mantra to live by in any walk of life, not just you know ex spies. <laughs> no, no, no. But it, it just, this is the key point: is that you keep learning, yes, and you keep meeting new people. Um, I mean, I'm I'm the world's worst networker. If you put me in a room full of strangers, you know, with corporate badges, and say go network, I'm like, oh, can't do that. Whereas just naturally meeting people and naturally having the chance to speak to people and things like that is much much better. And suddenly you find yourself with this amazing network. It's just great. It's yeah. part of the joy of life. Mm. I, I mean, and, and you do, you're, you're almost the, the lead public speaker in, in, in privacy. I'm not sure what you think, but, but I mean, the, a lot of my research for this consisted of watching just, just hours of you talking to groups. Oh of God, people. you poor thing. Sorry. I know, but, but it was, no, it was, it was fascinating. Um, you know, not, not to just blow smoke. You know, <laughs> do you know what I mean? But uh, no, yeah, and and it, it it's really. I'm not sure how often you ever look at YouTube comments, but normally they're quite horrible. And it's almost mm. like this kind of unanimous, like in support of the things you say, or at least like find them very interesting. Or I don't know. That that was good, the kind good. of vibe that I got from everything that I watched. In in terms of privacy, there was a. 
I, I don't know the details of it. I, sh- I should have really looked up before. There was a there was a thing that I was told about about the um uh about the the Chinese government when they built the Africa Union building, they they bugged it essentially and put backdoor leaks into extract information. So on, on a geopolitical level, that is a big country almost just extorting private information from a smaller country. And then if you go from a more social level, quite literally a social level, you have the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Mm-hmm. You feel that, I mean, in both instances, they're different scenarios, but it's the big company or the big dog or whatever, kind of picking on the little uh, man or, or kind of getting private information from the little man. Do you feel that that privacy, especially in the digital age, has become almost a commodity that the rich and powerful organizations or people feel entitled to if they can i mean we've had the pegasus scandal recently um i don't know if you're aware of this it was an israeli company called the nso uh, nso and um they developed this uh hack into iphones and um also android phones um via whatsapp and a few other very popular apps that we well i don't but most people use on their phones (laughs) which basically meant you didn't have to click on some dodgy link, like, you know, from a Nigerian prince or something like that, an email. Yeah. It would just automatically infest your phone and then spy on you. And the big scandal was, I think, about 50,000 politicians, lawyers, human rights activists, that sort of thing around the world, had been spied on by this corporation, which sold this spy product to all sorts of dodgy country regimes. So that was the big scandal. And it was all like, oh, these 50,000 people are outraged. You know, we're, we're supposed to be protected. We're the diplomats and we're the lawyers and all that sort of thing. Journalists. What about the rest of us? You know, going back to the core thing, though, about um, privacy. Sorry, I'm going to say that. All my American friends hate me for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that yeah. <laughs> but um, going back, that, that, is, that is a fundamental human right that was put in place in 1948 for mm. a very, very good reason. Yes. Straight after World War II, straight after Nazism, in the face of totalitarian communism in the Soviet Union as well at that time, this is why it was seen as a very basic right that had to be implemented. Otherwise, you cannot have a functioning democracy. If you don't have privacy, if you can't um, ingest information, you can't talk to people, you can't um, express yourself, freedom of expression, you can't share information, you can't agitate, you can't be active as a citizen then you cannot have a democracy. And of course, this the apotheosis or matter of this would be uh, the Stasi regime in East Berlin before the Berlin Wall came mm. down, where you know everyone was being spied on by a ton load of snitches and loads of tech. Um, so privacy is a fundamental bedrock of any form of Western democratic notional life, whether that still exists is another matter. China is constantly being excoriated for breaching this, as you mentioned, this bugging of the African Union building. This is no different from what the West has been doing mm-hmm. since at least the late 1990s. So particularly the NSA, which is the American um, Electronic Communications Interception Agency, um, wanted to achieve something they called total mastery of the internet. And they stated that back in 1999. So the internet was in its infancy, but it was really taking off. It was the first dot-com bubble. Everyone thought, great, you know, if we can get into this and inject the poison now, we can listen to everything, which is what they've done. After 9-11 happened back in 2001, um, again, the war on terror started. And that was the perfect excuse to allow the spy agencies, particularly GCHQ in the UK, which is the NSA's equivalent, and the NSA to go all out and 
spend huge amounts of money to bug and scoop up all our information. Now, many of us thought, and I, some of my friends in the Sam Adams organization, the whistleblowing intelligence organization, um, are very high profile NSA whistleblowers. Um, many of us thought over the last, you know, in the, the noughties perhaps, that this would probably extend to metadata for gen the general population. But if they wanted to target someone specifically, like a whistleblower, as well as a terrorist or whatever, um, then they could get everything, of course. What Edward Snowden came out and, and began to disclose in 2013 was the fact that they had developed these programs that grabbed everything for everybody. And that's the terrifying thing. So going back to my on the run whistleblowing exile type years, we, David and I knew exactly what they could do and how they could do it. And it was as invasive as what is happening now, but it was very much more labor intensive. Mm -hmm. very much more difficult to grab that degree of information whereas now click the switch they can do it to all of us and they are doing it to all of us and if that sounds paranoid i would just point any anyone who is watching this or listening to this to the edward snowden disclosures in 2013 and i'll give you three code names prism tempora t-e-m-p-o-r-a and optic nerve you look those up you will realize how little privacy you have Prism particularly is interesting because that was the very first disclosure where it showed that the American tech corporations, the giant global tech giants, either had wittingly or unwittingly had backdoors applied to them. I think Apple was the last company to fold um, in caving into you know, the NSA, getting this backdoor and spying on everyone through their system. But they all have it. Um, and the hardware has it as well. I mean, like these phones that we use have it. Yeah. Do you feel that, I mean, now if you, if you log on to, to uh, any sort of social media, there's cookies, there's, there's um, you know, you take all the terms and conditions and without reading them. Do you feel that as much as <laughs> the people The biggest lie ever told, I think Cory Doctorow said. <laughs> in, in terms of people will value certain types of privacy, but almost online and, and their, essentially their whole character and being, which has been shaped by what they search on the internet. Do you feel that people just don't, in that regard, almost don't care anymore about their privacy. And, and what do you think about that? I, again, yes and no. I think um, certainly since smartphones took off, um, mm -hmm. I remember seeing the technology being displayed for the first time on a TED Talk in 2008. And the acceleration from that to where we are now is astonishing. I think one, um, a whole generation has grown up not thinking about privacy and just thinking about the convenience of doing everything via their smartphones which is incredibly dodgy and it leaves you wide open to all sorts of attacks, not least financial hacking, if you're going to do online paying. Um, so, but also I think there has been a pushback. And I think one of the things that's accelerating that pushback is concern, certainly in Europe, about things like COVID passports, you know, having your biometric data shoved on your phone or whatever it is. And people feel uncomfortable about that. Back in 2013, people felt very uncomfortable about the disclosures that Edward Snowden was making. But that sort of that sort of faded, you know, it's history now, it's sort of faded from the cultural memory. But things like other you know, COVID or anything else that's going to come up, people will begin to think about this. Now, because we have been complacent and it has been convenient, we have allowed ourselves to become entrapped in using these shiny little gadgets that spy on us. However, there are ways of pushing back if you want to, or if governments wanted to, to as well. You know, you, you don't use Apple, you don't use Microsoft, you don't use closed proprietary software. You move on to things like 
open source software, Linux, of any flavor, because that is created by a global community of geeks who can read all the source code and every time it's attacked, they can pack, you know, sort it out, you will get updates. It's much safer. Um, you can use anonymizing tools like the Onion Router tool to anonymously browse the internet. You can use anonymized operating systems, which you plug into your computer. So it's a different computer operating system rather than the usual one uh, called Tails. You can use uh, virtual privacy networks, VPNs. Um, you can use encrypted, uh, I think PGP is a little bit bust now, but I mean, for example, when I speak to people on my phone, mainly I use Signal, which is an open, more an open source, end-to-end um, -end encrypted thing. I would always recommend people do not use WhatsApp, <laughs> which purports to be end-to-end -end encryption, but has been hacked. Um, so there are all these different tools that if you are concerned about, you can try and use. If you are very concerned about, you can try and use a whole suite of them at the same time. But that becomes a pain in the ass, to be quite yes. frank, which is why it goes back to the convenience issue. Um, this is why I am talking to you now via my phone, which is wide open. You know, it's a Huawei. Oh, my God, it's even worse. The I've got Huawei phone as well. Yeah, yeah. Great, <laughs> <laughs> Huawei, come and sponsor us. <laughs> but, you know, my computer is, is open source and locked down. So I keep the two very distinct. Yeah. So in terms of the issues we have sort of painted ourselves into a corner civilizationally and it's not just what china might be doing or what russia might be doing it's also what the western intelligence agencies might be doing particularly the five eyes i mean the nsa gthq china uh, canada new zealand and australia they are all they've built this global panopticon and what we're seeing from china or what we're seeing from russia or iran or any other you know rogue country is just a pushback against what the west has been doing since the late 1990s um, because we painted ourselves into a corner, we're trying to find creative ways to future-proof our rights and future-proof our uh, privacy and also so our, our lives online. I mean, particularly with COVID, we now all talk like this, whereas in the past, privacy issues were a niche thing for weirdos like me um, who preferred to meet people face-to-face. -face. But that's also what took me into working with um, one of my current organisations, and I will mention them. This is a shout-out to the World Ethical Data Foundation, and the World Ethical Data Forum, and the forum is something that happens every year, and we drag together all these sort of world-class speakers on all sorts of different issues, privacy as well. Um, it's one of the big ones, but as I mentioned up front, um, academia, um, the media, the spy agencies, corporate stuff, um, people to talk about things like Cambridge Analytica as well, the impact on democracy um, and fake news, and just trying to get people out of their intellectual bunkers so that they actually get to talk to people they would normally avoid and try and create a, a more positive dialogue rather than sort of, you know, a media headbanging clash, which is what the media likes because it gets them lots of clicks. So um, if anyone's interested, please have a look at world eth worldethicaldata.org. I'll stick it in yeah. the little yeah. description. Yeah, that'd um, be great. <laughs> honestly, Annie, it's been, I, I know you've got a meeting, so I'll, I'll wrap it up, but it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. What I do want to ask, just to just to end it, um, obviously, I mean, before you, you you talked about how difficult the years were of you being in exile and and the years after that, and and how it really took your toll on it. And speaking to you now, you, you're you're doing your speaking and you're talking about how you've met all these wonderful people and you seem a very happy person. Uh, how happy are you with how your life's turned out after taking such a big leap? <laughs> known? That's a very good question. Um, I would say pretty much, yes, because 
if I hadn't taken that leap, if I, if I hadn't taken that risk, I, it's hard to tell, isn't it? I mean, that, that was such a giant fork in the road mm -hmm. to become. But I think because I've always stuck to what I saw as my core principles that I grew up with, with my father, my grandfather and the rest of my family, um, that has kept me relatively safe. Ah, yeah, I mean, I could be head of MI5 now, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, which could probably have made more of a difference. I don't know. Probably not. But um, no, I, I am generally a pretty upbeat person and I feel lucky in the outcome because whistleblowing can destroy um, or hurt people very badly. Um, it Well, it hurt me very badly too and our families. But um, I think if you keep looking forward and you keep looking towards what you think is right and other stuff comes up and you learn and you learn these new areas or you think this actually fits with my personal goals or my personal principles I'll go with this or oh my god can I do this project um I've never touched anything like this I'll give it a go so it's just a, one it's a learning thing one it's um a chance to meet all sorts of amazing people but it's also just uh, satisfaction in keeping moving forward there's nothing worse than getting stale I think in life I would hate to do that I would hate to, it's just moving forward and um grabbing opportunities when you can and avoiding the pitfalls. I mean, because there always are a few pitfalls, try and avoid them. But um, no, I, I just, I do, I feel lucky um, and generally content. I wouldn't say happy, happy, happy is a very um, fleeting experience, I think, but to find contentment and comfort in yourself and to have a lot of very lovely friends around you and colleagues that you enjoy working with and subjects that you feel you can contribute to um, and potentially make a difference i think that's the definition of contentment or at least it is for me i think that's a brilliant place on it i'll uh, i'll end the recording but yeah honestly th thank you so much for for spending the time to speak to me i really do. it's been a pleasure and thank you for the questions harry they've been great <laughs>